Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Calvary Bible Church. Today is Communion Sunday. And this week, for our scripture reading, we're going to be in Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Probably start doing more psalms during this time each week. This is a great psalm, one of my favorites. And uh, it's a great psalm for communion. So we will uh, kind of tie the two together this morning. So if you would, follow me. I believe the words are on the screen. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So here we have a psalm of David, and this one is well known to us because this is uh, written after David's sin with Bathsheba, and that's essentially the idea here between Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. Both of those psalms connect to that incident in David's life. And we know that David hid his sin for a period of a year, and he talked about how when he was silent, when he was in his sin, his bones wasted away within him. He was dying on the inside, drying up, separated from God in his sin. But then God graciously exposed David, and David repented for his sins, and he confessed his sins, and God graciously restored David. And so when you read this psalm, you hear a heart of confession, you hear a heart of repentance, you hear a heart that cries out continually, God, please blot out my sins. Do not deal with me according to my own transgressions and sins. He talks about sacrifices that aren't pleasing to God. 
the rituals and things that we like to do that mean nothing to God when our heart is not right before Him, when we are in our sin. However, when we come to God with a broken heart, a contrite heart, when we are sorrow, sorrowful before Him because of our sin and confessing our sin to Him, God, God delights in that. That is a, a sacrifice that God will receive. And so it's with that that we come to the Lord's table and we remember afresh the good news of what Jesus has done for us. Amen? Indeed, our sins have been blotted out. Our sins have been washed away. We have been forgiven. He has given us a new heart. He has renewed us and given us His Spirit. And God does receive our praise. God does receive our sacrifice of thanksgiving and obedience that we offer to Him. Praise God. And that's what communion is a reminder of to us always. It's a time that we can come to the Lord and we can come confessing our sins and remembering afresh what He has accomplished for us. It's a time of celebration and rejoicing and what Christ has done. Paul says that as often as we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And as I always like to point out, this is a reminder. It's something that Jesus gave His church. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. These things happen continually and we are reminded afresh of what Christ has done for us. That we have died with Christ. That we've been buried. That we have been risen again into the newness of life. That Christ died for us first and foremost to wash away our sins and to reconcile us back to the Father. And so often as we walk through this world and we fall into sin, we feel as though we become cold, distant from the Lord. Communion is a fresh reminder of what Christ did for us. Amen. And He hasn't gone anywhere. If anybody, it's us. We're the ones that distance ourselves from the Lord. We're the ones who grow cold. And this is an opportunity for us to stir up afresh the, that flame, that, that fire that is in us, and to remember afresh the gracious works of God on Calvary's cross, what Jesus Christ did for us. And it's a time to confess our love for Him again afresh and to draw near to the Lord. Amen? Amen. If we draw near to Him, He will what? Draw near to us. So that's what this is. We are drawing near to Jesus afresh at the table. We are giving Him thanks that His body was broken and that His blood was poured out for us. We are remembering and confessing afresh that we have partaken of that sacrifice. It is ours, specifically, each and every one of us individually, but each and every one of us corporately. We are one body in Christ, having partaken of the same sacrifice, having been redeemed and cleansed by the same sacrifice, having been made one in unity by the same Holy Spirit. Amen? We worship the same Father. Amen? And so praise God for the gift of the Lord's table. And I'm excited to be able to share this together. Pastor Dan will lead us in a song here in just a moment. And everybody will come up and get their elements. And then you can return back to your seats. And then we will partake together. But before we do that, let's pray. Jesus, we just come before you right now and we confess, Lord, that we are sinners that we have sinned, that we do sin. It grieves us, Lord, as those who are in Christ and born again from above, born of the Spirit. Lord, we do not desire to sin. We desire righteousness, but we recognize that we're in the flesh. 
And so often we cave to the desires of the flesh. And so we come this morning asking your forgiveness. The Bible says that if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We want to draw near to you, O Lord. May our assurance be in your accomplishments and your achievements, not our performance. May we draw near to you at the table this morning, remembering that it's all you. It is all you. It is who you are and what you have accomplished for us. It was never us, never anything that we had to contribute to the equation except our own sin. And so we thank you, Jesus. We receive your love by faith. We receive your grace afresh. We thank you for your great mercy. We thank you for this visible reminder to the church of who you are and what you've done for us, how much you love us. That's how much you love us, that you were willing to pay such a price, such a price, such a cost, Lord. It's free for us. Salvation is free. All we have to do is believe, but it costs you everything, Lord. And so we give you the praise, and we remember afresh what it cost you, and we thank you, Father, that you were willing to pay such a price to send your son for us to redeem your church. So praise you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus, we do remember you, even in this very moment. We thank you, Lord, so much that you gave your body to be broken, your blood to be poured out. You did this in love. You did it for us. You did it to purchase a bride for yourself. You did it so that we would be redeemed, Lord that we would be ransomed, that we would be set free, restored, so that one day we would be glorified in your very presence, giving you glory as the Lamb of God, the Lamb who was slain. And we worship you even now as such, and we thank you that you paid such a price for us. We receive that by faith, and we rejoice, we celebrate, we come with glad hearts, we come with a peace that the world can't offer, the, pe- oh, the world can't take it away, the world can't understand it. It's supernatural. It's the peace of God, the peace with God, the peace that comes from being in Christ. It's ours forevermore, and we thank you for that. And we receive, we receive your grace and your goodness, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let us partake. Amen. God is good. Uh, With that, let's go ahead and turn our attention to the Word of God. And we are in James chapter 1 today. We are in James chapter 1. And uh, I would like to do a chapter today, but I don't think we will because we'll be kind of considering some introductory stuff, which is good. It's really good to understand the introductory aspects of a book before we study the book. Really helpful, really helpful, and so I'm excited to do that today. And so, uh, real quick, Father, thank you that we can enter into a time of Bible study now. Holy Spirit, please bless us and bless our understanding as you moved in holy men of God to, to pen, to record, inspired, God-breathed truth, revelation. And that has been handed down generation from generation, and we have a copy of our own in our own language, and we have the Holy Spirit who illuminates our understanding as we study your word. 
So please open up our hearts and our minds to understand this truth today and that it would change us. It's for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, a little bit about the book of James. James is written by none other than James. But there are several different Jameses mentioned in the New Testament. And really, there's two in particular that we could consider as the authors of this. One would be one of the apostles, James. But he was martyred. He was the first apostle to be martyred. He was beheaded. And we have that recorded for us in the book of Acts. And so it's unlikely that that James wrote this book. This is probably James, the half-brother of Jesus. I don't know if you know this or not, but Jesus had brothers and sisters. Now, Jesus was born miraculously, the virgin birth, and the angel had commanded um, Joseph that he and um, Mary remain um, not, not sleeping together until after she has Jesus, but after that, they had more children, and so they had several, in fact. So they had three or four more boys. Um, we don't know how many sisters, but it's in the plural, so at least two. And so uh, these were all half-brothers and sisters to Jesus, obviously. They shared the same mother, but Jesus had a different father, obviously, Father God. And so uh, we believe this to be one of Jesus' half-siblings, James. Now, James didn't really believe in Jesus when Jesus was doing his signs and wonders and preaching and his public ministry. In fact, we're told at one point when Jesus was speaking to the crowd that his mother and brothers came to try to get him and bring him home because they thought he was out of his mind. And so it would appear, and and there's other accounts of his brothers kind of mocking him a little bit. It would seem, it would seem that they were mocking him a bit. So we know that James evidently, could you imagine growing up with Jesus as your half-brother, the oldest, and it's like, who, who could compete with that, okay? You've got a perfect sibling. And so uh, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared to James. So he had a personal encounter with the risen Christ. I would say at that point, he was converted, that he believed, obviously. He saw the risen Christ And he knew and he believed. And he was forever changed. He had a nickname, tradition. When I say tradition or history says, these are things that were handed down through church history, but we don't find directly in the Bible. So we can't state it as matter of fact, because this is fact, but other things are handed down through church history or tradition, as it were. And uh, those things can be interesting, insightful, helpful. But it's been said that his nickname was Camel Knees because he prayed on his knees so much that his knees were totally calloused and, and messed up. And camels, obviously, they rest on their, their knees. If you've ever seen their knees, they're pretty jacked up looking. And so uh, it was an affectionate term, but it just spoke of his devotion to God. James was killed in 62 A.D. for his faith. Tradition has it that he was thrown off the temple wall. It's very high, high in the air. But he didn't die when he hit the ground. So then he was either stoned or clubbed to death there on the ground after he had been thrown off by religious leaders. He was a very prominent figure in the church there. And um, very prominent. He had been there, a leader in the church for like 30 years in the Jerusalem church. 
And so finally he did die for his faith. And he was thrown down. He was told to, to deny his faith and to turn or else. And he didn't. And so they, they killed him. Killed him for his faith. Now, James is what is considered a general epistle. There are the Pauline epistles, which are letters, Pauline letters, that, uh, that we have that come up right after Acts. You have Romans and Galatians, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, on through the list. But then after that, you get into the general epistles, and these are written by people like Peter and James and Jude and so on and so forth. And in this letter, we have five chapters, 108 verses. So it's a rather short letter, 108 verses. Of those 108 verses, there are 54 commands, 54 commands, imperatives, things that we're told we must do. This book has been likened to Proverbs, the Proverbs of the New Testament, because there's just all of these little pithy, short statements that are given, commandments that are given for us to live a practical Christian life. There are 40 references to the Old Testament. 40 references to the Old Testament in this little book. 30 times nature is referenced. Uh, we see that in the beginning of the book. He talks about being tossed to and fro like waves of the sea. 30 different references. There are 20 references to the Sermon on the Mount. 20 references to the Sermon on the Mount here in the book, the letter of James. James was the earliest written New Testament book. It was the first book to actually be penned. And we believe that it was penned sometime between 45 and 50 A.D. So if Jesus died in 33 A.D., then this letter was written sometime between 45 and 50. That's not that long thereafter. Now, there was a significant event that happened in the book of Acts in chapter 15 that's called the Jerusalem Council. It had just happened that the gospel was now going to the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 10, Cornelius, he was um, the first Gentile who really believed. Uh, it, it had happened to the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, but now it was very official. The gospel was going outside of the Jewish nation to the Gentiles, and a real issue sprung up at that point. The question was, well, do you have to become a Jew before you can become a Christian? Do men have to be circumcised? Do they have to go through all of these rituals and rites, proselytize into Judaism, which is a very difficult thing to do, and then become a Christian? And there were many who were saying that absolutely you have to do that. And Paul said, no way, that's putting an undue burden. That is a false gospel. They just have to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and turn to him in faith. So they had to go to Jerusalem to deal with this issue. And James was there as the leader of the Jerusalem church. And he, he presided over that meeting and he handed down some decrees that are written for us in Acts chapter 15. But I say all that to say that there was a time when it was just purely Jewish Christianity really just belonged to the Jews there. So much so that Rome, they didn't really see Christianity as something all that distinct from Judaism. They saw it as like a subset of Judaism, just a sect of Judaism, if you will. So they didn't really have a lot of prominence. They weren't well known, and there really wasn't a lot of turbulence or trouble coming from Rome, at least at that time. And that's important to recognize because this letter is very Jewish. It is very Jewish in nature. 
it, it makes sense. In fact, the letter is written to the 12 tribes who have been scattered in the dispersion. And so if you're wondering why is that, why is this New Testament letter being addressed to the Jews? Because at that point in time, that's just about all that did believe. So this was very early on, and in fact, that was, that was an issue. That's why persecution hit the church in Acts chapter 8, because Jesus had told them what? To go into all the world and to make disciples, and to go in Jerusalem, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Well, what did they do? They put down roots right there in Jerusalem, and they didn't move. And so persecution came in, and they were scattered, and the gospel began to go out. And so that seems to be the timing of this letter and kind of what's going on there, why it's addressed to the 12 tribes of Israel. But obviously it's to the Christians, so it applies to all Christians universally. And this is a very practical letter, which again makes a lot of sense because they were people who were known to be very zealous for the law of God, very zealous for for the practical tenets of the law. And so... James is very practical, very practical in this letter. In fact, I would say kind of the theme verse of this book is be doers of the word and not hearers only. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. We'll see that in chapter 1. But there's, there's the overall charge or imperative or command that it's not enough to know the word, we have to do the word, Right? Amen? And so we'll see that as we move through. Now, some people throughout church history have really struggled with this book. If you know who Martin Luther is, he was part of the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. He called this a book of straw. And I think in part what he meant by that, it's not a lot of very weighty theological issues. It's just practical. It's a lot of practical. Don't get me wrong. It is theological, and we'll get into that. But it's mostly practical, and I think for that reason, he just kind of saw it as not, that, not a very weighty book. But more than that, and this is a real interpretive challenge, he puts, James puts so much emphasis on works. You know, he talks about faith plus works is dead. We'll see that in chapter 2 that some really take that too far and think that James was putting forth this idea of of works-based salvation. Faith is fine, but really you need to be doing works. And I think that was how Martin Luther understood this. And Martin Luther was was Roman Catholic and had been radically saved and changed through the doctrine of justification by faith in the book of Romans. Radically changed. He... He said, you asked me if I loved God, I I hated God. He hated God because his relationship with God was one of constantly trying to appease a God of wrath, a God of justice, trying to please a God that he felt could not be pleased. And so try as he may, he would buffet his body, He he would put himself through some of the most intense suffering because he was trying to atone for his own sins, as it were, that he... He gave himself injuries that pretty much carried throughout his whole life. And so one day he was reading Romans, and he saw that the just shall live by faith. And God just pierced his heart. And he understood that salvation came through faith, believing in Jesus Christ by faith. And so he saw this as a contradiction to that. However, we know there is no contradiction What James is saying is is that if you are saved, if you have believed by faith, then you will have a life of works that will demonstrate that. 
And so one is not divorced from the other, and one does not stand in contradiction to the other. They are not mutually exclusive. exclusive. They're married together. Amen? This letter has also been called a string of pearls. Now, that, that sounds good, right? But what it's essentially saying is it's a bunch of beautiful truths that are just totally disconnected, but on the same string. And it can almost seem like that, like there's no cohesiveness to this. It's just command, 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 and you go through the thing, and it just seems totally chaotic and scattered, much like Proverbs, even though I would argue that Proverbs is not as scattered as you might think. And so I would argue such is not the case here. It's not a string of pearls uh, it's, what it is is it's very circular in nature. It's not very linear, and that is typical for, for uh, you know, the, the Eastern style of thinking and writing. They'll hit on something, move on, come back, hit on it again, move on, come back, and it's almost like it's all mixed together. But there are different themes that are carried out throughout the book, and so there's kind of like a circling back to things that have been addressed previously so we'll do our best to keep everything within its context and understand how these things are fitting together. Some of you look like you're getting a little sleepy. You, you with me? You with me? I, don't, I, I love this stuff. I love this stuff. You know, Give me a couple Greek words. Give me some history and geography. I'm happy, right? But uh, at any rate, um, I'll kind of close with this before we move into the, the chapter themes. There are so many different themes that come up in this book, some major themes, some secondary themes, but themes such as trials, and that's what we'll be looking at today, temptations, wisdom, speech, faith and action, prayer, warnings against worldliness, warnings against presumption, presuming upon God as it were, Warning against wealth. Wealth in itself is not sin, and it's not bad, obviously, but wealth that leads to self-reliance. Wealth that causes us to, to have no regard for God. And also, he deals with patience and suffering, and there are even more themes that I could list, but uh, I think that's, that's sufficient for now. And so there, in a nutshell, is the, the book of James. And we'll, uh, we'll look at those things again in the coming weeks. But for today, let's go ahead and turn our attention to chapter 1. I don't think we'll make it through chapter 1. I'll close at a reasonable time, but due to the introductory thoughts, we'll just see how far we get. Amen? All right, well, James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So we've already talked quite a bit about James, but what I love about James, and if I were the one writing this letter, I probably would have said, Rob, the half-brother of Jesus, but he didn't do that. He didn't do that. What did he say? He says, James, a servant. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is so fitting, and that is fitting for us. That's what we are. We are servants. That's one of the key I would say identities. There are a number of ways in which we identify with Christ. He's our, he's our Savior. He's our friend, the Bible even says, our brother. Amazing to consider that. But He's our Lord. He's our Lord, which means that we bow the knee to His will. It means that we follow Him 
and His will be done in our lives. Amen? Uh, he's, he's our Savior. He has to be our Savior. If He's not our Savior, then we're still in our sin. But it has to go beyond even just a Savior because there are plenty of people who want to not go to hell. Who wants to go? To, nobody wants to go to hell. We want to go to heaven. But in this life, we still kind of want to do our own thing. We kind of want to be the Lord of our own lives still. And so that, that cannot, that's incompatible. Jesus must be Lord. He must be King. He must be the one to whom we bow our knee. And we must joyfully and delightfully enter into that. And I you know, praise God, Jesus is my Lord. He is my King. I wouldn't have it any other way. But the problem is, and I know that we can all relate with this, we still want to do our own thing. Even though we don't really want to do our own thing, we know it's so much better to let Jesus rule and reign in our lives Somehow, some way, we still end up fighting for that position. We still end up not really going to Jesus, not really seeking Him, not really asking Him to guide our steps so much as we're very, very capable of guiding our own steps. And we'll go to Jesus in a pinch, but that's not good. Jesus is Lord, amen? Jesus is our Lord, and we are His servants, and what an honor and what a blessing that is. I couldn't think of any greater life than to be a servant of the King Jesus. And this is addressed to the dispersion. Now, throughout Israel's history, the Jews have been scattered many times over because of the, the, the warring nations that would come in and displace them. They had been displaced by the Assyrians, the Babylonians. And so for that reason, by the time Jesus comes and you know, dies, rises again from the grave. When we have the Feast of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, there were Jews who had come from all around the known world to celebrate. That's why they had been scattered like that. And so when those uh, Jews came to faith in Christ there at Pentecost, they went home. Now there were Christians in all of these different nations. And so James is able to write to these Jewish Christians who lived in all of these other nations. These were the Jews that had been scattered abroad. And so this letter was intended to be sent out to them and copied and copied and copied and to be uh, given to all the different churches and, and Christians throughout the known world at that time. So he says, greetings, greetings to you. Now that's a very short greetings for, for James here, very short. He just says, I'm James, servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes, greetings. And then he gets right into it, right into it. And so with that, what we will see in the next couple of verses, and I would say that this, this really uh, ties in with the bulk of this chapter, is how do we navigate trials? And that is the title of the message today, Navigating Trials. That would be the theme of today's considerations. We all have trials, amen? Oh, I guess I'm the only one. Okay, I'm just the only one that has trials. Okay. Well, this will apply to me. The rest of you, I don't know. Um, maybe we got some coloring books or something. Y'all can just zone out and color. I'm just kidding. Um, verse 2, James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now let me just give a, a little bit of a, 
caution here. If you've been walking with the Lord for any amount of time, I'm sure you know these verses. And if you've been walking with the Lord for a lengthy amount of time, you know these verses very well. These would be some of those verses that I believe when you first become a Christian and you hear it, it's amazing. And you understand this and you realize this is something very different than anything I've ever heard or kind of been led by in my life. You would never see trials as a good thing. You would never see hardships or difficulties as something that you could profit from. And that's a huge shift for a Christian when you recognize that in God's economy, He uses all things, particularly bad things, even for our good. And that's, it's radical, and we fall in love with these verses. But like so many other really radical and awesome verses, it becomes old. And, you know, it might be good on a bumper sticker or a coffee cup or a magnet on the freezer, but it, it loses that special something that it had in the beginning, like Romans 8, 28, or Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, or Philippians 4, 6, and 8, all of these verses that we, we know so well. But the thing is, I doubt that we've really grown in our ability to do these things. We still struggle with actually doing these things, and when we go through hardships, we may not even necessarily go right to this way of thinking. Yet at the same time, when we hear these verses, we think, yeah, I've heard that a thousand times, quoted it a thousand times, heard it preached on a thousand times, and it loses that special significance. And I want to challenge us, let that never be the case for us. I want us to hear this fresh, and maybe it will strike you as fresh if you consider the fact that Maybe it's just me, but I struggle with doing this. I struggle with doing this. So my question is not do you know these things, but are you doing these things? And what does James say? Not to just be a hearer of the word, but what? To be a doer of the word. Because if we're a hearer and not a doer, we're deceiving ourselves, James says. So maybe we are deceived into thinking that we know these things, but we don't really know these things. Because it's one thing to be able to repeat it. It's another thing to actually be able to obey it or live it out when it happens. And I would submit to you, this is, this is, it's simple, but it's not easy. It's simple, but it is very difficult. But we can do it by God's grace. He wouldn't have told us to do it. Because we have all that we need through life, for life and godliness through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Amen? And so perhaps I should start there. This is not principles for living a better life. This is not principles for people of all walks of life and stripes. If you don't know Jesus, this is just putting yourself into a, a place of, of bondage, just trying to measure up, just trying to live by godly precepts that we can't do apart from a new heart in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Amen? So we've got to start there. These principles will change our lives. God's Word is the mechanism that He uses to change our lives, to save our lives and change our lives. But we have to have a new heart first. You have to believe the gospel. You have to repent of your sins. You have to uh, have the Holy Spirit. You have to have those things before we can actually walk in these things. Because they're hard enough, even as a Christian, I would say impossible without Christ. And so we start there. Now, Count it all joy when you meet various trials, trials of various kinds. So first, what I would point out here is trials are certain. They're certain. He doesn't say if you meet trials. He says when 
you meet trials. So we need not be surprised when trials come. We should be anticipating these things. We shouldn't be shocked. We shouldn't act as if some strange thing has happened. And it, it usually comes out of nowhere, right? They tend to be very spontaneous when you meet various trials. We don't usually get a warning ahead of time. It just happens, and it can really throw us through a loop. But we have to have this mindset, wait a second, the Word of God says trials are coming. And so I shouldn't act like, oh, why me? Why not you? Who would you suggest? Would you rather it fall on somebody else? Lord, let it fall on somebody else, just not me. Why me? No. You know, when we meet trials of various kinds, I would say also from this verse, what we see is they are, they vary in, in types. There are varying degrees of trials. Now, I would make a distinction here. We're not talking about temptations so much. We will get to that. But we're talking about difficulties, hardships, calamities. And there are varying degrees of these. There are just the annoyances of life that happen every day, right? We all, we all know what that is. And then there are just those devastating things that come in and, and shake our world. And this could be physically, this could be relationally, it could be spiritually. When we see people that we know and love and respect fall and we wonder, how can this be? People that we've benefited from. It can come in so many different ways. So many different ways these trials hit us. There's a sense in which we all experience the same trials. As humanity, we're all kind of going through the same things. But there is also a sense in which they're unique. There are certain trials that some of us here will face that others won't. There are certain trials that God will allow some of us to walk through that others will not walk through. So we have to recognize that trials are coming. There's no question about that. They will come spontaneously, and they will vary in kind and size. But here's, what we, here's how we respond to that. We're to count it all joy. Now, that's, that was very foreign to me, and that's still foreign to me. I still don't count it as joy. Now, let me just say this. That doesn't mean just be so happy. I don't, I don't think that we're supposed to just feel great when hardships come. I don't think that's what the Bible is telling us to do, okay? There are many things that make me happy and fill my heart with joy, and trials will just never be one of those things. That's okay. But the point here is we can recognize that even in the midst of our trials, there's a higher, deeper thing that is happening here, that God works these things for good, which we'll see in a moment, and so we can transcend all of that and still maintain a posture of joy, we will not be crushed by these things. We will not be struck down. We will not allow these things to take us out because we know that nothing can happen to us that God himself doesn't allow. And we can know that God is and does use these things for his own purposes and our own good. Nothing is wasted. Nothing is wasted. Now, the world says what doesn't kill you only makes you... But that's, that's a very, you know, th this is so much deeper than that. 
This is so much deeper than that. This isn't just being battle-hardened, as it were. God is the complexities of sanctification and what God is working out of us and what God is working into us and how God is using us in other people's lives and other people into our lives and the work that He is doing as He's advancing His purpose big picture and then individually, singularly. It's amazing and we'll never understand, understand or fathom it completely in this life, but it's, it's an, an amazing thing that God is doing. But God uses trials more than anything, I, I feel like. I wish that God would just, you know, make it happen. Boom. You have more patience. You have more joy. You have more love. You know, everybody look under your seats. More joy for you and more patience for you and more love for you. Maybe you get the reference, maybe you don't, but uh, at any rate, it doesn't work that way. God works these things into our lives through difficulty and hardship. God brings us into a deeper understanding of His faithfulness, of His care, of His love, of His trustworthiness, of His gentleness, of His being ever-present. He works all of those things into our hearts through difficulties, through hardships. He breaks us up and shaves things off of us and you know does that work in us through difficulty and, and hardship. I wish that wasn't the case. I really can say that I wish that wasn't the case, but it really is the case. I love the good times. I love being up on the mountaintops. Those are so sweet. It's a gift from God, but there's not much there's not a lot that happens in us in those times. And uh, it, it has to happen even in our failings. You know, this, this is very similar to the principle of exercise. It's not rocket science. This is very simple stuff. In order to really gain from exercising, you have to go to failure. For those of you who may not know what that is, it's like you're doing pull-ups, and I have a gun to your head, and I'm telling you, do another pull-up, and you can't. Uh, that's failure, and that's at the point in which our body really breaks down and grows. And we have to go to failure. Uh, maybe you've heard the saying, God won't give you more than you can handle. False. I'm sorry to say that's not biblical. Now, God won't give you, there's no temptations. I think that, that deals more with the issue of temptation. God will make a way of escape when it comes to temptation, but how will, we grow, not, how will we grow if God doesn't give us more than we can handle? God gives us more than we can handle so that we will go to Him because He doesn't want us being self-reliant. And God gives us more than we can handle so that we can grow. So I would say that even in our failure... Now, what I'm not saying is, therefore, go out and fail. You know, just have a good old time. Fail, and you're going to grow. But no, as we fight the fight and walk in the light and really strive for holiness, even in our deepest struggles and failures, none of that is a waste. And God uses that to grow us. Some of the, I think some of the, the most radical growth in my life has come from some of the most radical failures in my life. Because the, the, the deeper the trial, the more difficult it is, even if you, even if you just crumble under it, I'll tell you one thing, lesser trials definitely don't seem as intense anymore because you've dealt with things that are so much more difficult. And I don't know how all of this works. Obviously, this is something that's more complex spiritually than our finite minds can understand. But trials are a good thing. Trials are a good thing because we're told here that it produces steadfastness. 
Now, your Bible may say that it produces patience, and that's, that's, not, that's not a wrong word. Uh, New King James translates it that way. It's often translated as patience. But I, I feel like patience is kind of a weak rendering of this word because patience could be something as simple as dealing with annoying people or you lose your keys, or you, you have these little annoying things that happen. It's like, Lord, give me patience. And you'll have people say, don't pray for patience, because then all kinds of annoying things will come into your life, right? And that's how you're going to become more patient. And uh, you're like, I prayed for patience, and all of a sudden there were so many annoying people, and I'm like, hmm, I wonder if you're the annoying person. <laughs> Anyways, um, this is so much deeper than just patience. This is steadfastness. <clears throat> this is a, a deep abiding resolve. That word steadfastness is hupomone in the Greek. And what that means is it's bearing up underneath a crushing weight. It is carrying a crushing weight and it is not trying to get out from underneath the weight. It's not praying yourself out from underneath the weight. It's not trying to cast the weight off of you, but it's bearing up underneath it so that it will have its intended effect. That is the idea of steadfastness. And this is so much deeper than just being patient with annoyances in life because as Christians, we've got to have steadfastness. This is a word we probably don't use much. You wouldn't use if, if it wasn't, you know, it's Bible language, it's Christian language, but it's such an important word and such an important reality to make it in this life, to make it in this Christian walk, we got to have steadfastness. If we want to grow, if we want to be sanctified, we have to have steadfastness in order to stay the course and walk with God for the rest of our lives till we stand with Him in glory. We have to have steadfastness to be able to resist sin and temptation, to be able to be obedient to the commands of Christ when it hurts. We have to have steadfastness. We have to have hupomone. And so now I want to, you know, just say that I think that we, I know that we struggle with this because I pray myself out of trials every chance that I get. And if we ask people how can we pray for them, they're going to they're ask that we pray for them out of their trials. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm not saying that's a wrong thing necessarily. But I do think that there are times when God brings trials into our lives to sanctify us. And spiritual maturity says that we need to welcome it. We need to thank God for it. Thanking God for our trials. We need to ask God to accomplish His good work in us through these trials. Because in part, God will use us to comfort others who go through these same trials. And so this is a higher level. This is a higher spiritual plane. And why do I say that? Because it says in verse 4 that we are to let steadfastness have its full effect, that we may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, the word perfect there, it means mature. To be totally mature in our thinking and to be complete, to be well-rounded, mature Christians. Well, how are we going to do that? We're going to do that by letting God sanctify us through difficulties and hardships. We're not going to let trials come into our lives and just destroy us and wreck us and abandon our faith and 
and, and you know, sideline this whole thing. We're not going to do that. We're going to trust God. We're going to pray to God that He would strengthen us, and we're going to persevere, and we're going to let steadfastness have its work in us so that we will be mature Christians. We can, we can go to church, we can do all the Christian things for years, and never actually mature. And that is a, that's a very real warning that I am issuing to you because I have seen it time and again. I, literal age means nothing. That's why Paul could tell Timothy to set an example to the believers and don't let people look down on you because of your youth. Now, age was held up as a very important thing in that culture, and it still is in many cultures. But Paul says that really is not relevant here. You need to set the standard. You need to set the bar. And Christian maturity oftentimes doesn't have anything to do with how old you are. And so we have to be careful. We don't want to have a life of wasted trials. We don't want to let life pass us by and be spiritual babies. We don't want to be worldly ends. We want to be sanctified, mature Christians who are fit and useful for the Master's purposes and who come to a deeper place of faith in God. Amen? Don't you want that? I want that. I want that. I just think, to me, there's something sweet about being able to do this, to be able to walk in this, to not just see trials purely as an inconvenience or some awful thing that has no significance or will will have no, no meaning or purpose in my life, but to be able to actually grow closer to God and to grow more in Christ's likeness. Paul talked about being able to, that he would be, help me out, Philippians, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul knew that there was an intimacy with Jesus that came through suffering. It wasn't wasted. And so, uh, allowing these things to have their place in our lives and to have full effect, that we would be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Amen? So, we need to be praying for that. We need to be praying, God help us in this. God help us. Now, I don't pray for trials. I don't ask that God would, uh, would do these things. <laughs> I don't encourage that we do. Um, I, I have at times, and I am too scared to pray that prayer now, let me just say. Uh, but when these things happen, we need to recognize that there's a, there's a purpose and a place, and we need to persevere, amen, endure. Maybe you're here today and you're feeling like, I can't keep going. Maybe you're here today and you're suffering uh, greatly. Maybe you're here today and you are struggling hard. Well, I'm telling you, God is good. God is faithful, God allows these things into your lives, and God is using them even now to conform you into the image of His Son and to build strength and resolve in you, that you will be mature, that you will be complete, that you will lack in nothing, and that you'll be equipped to be able to serve and help others who are going through the same, amen? Because the thing is, the Christian life, it's not about me, and it's not about you, it's about us. And that is also a foreign concept that many of us have to come into the realization of when we walk with Christ. It's not just about me anymore, it's about us, amen? So what I go through helps me to help others. What you go through helps you to help others. We're to esteem others' needs as greater than our own. And so let us be praying for each other in that regard. 
Let's look at verses 5 through 8 in closing, uh, but this will just be a very short closing aspect to this. Verse 5, it says, if, you, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I believe that this is still connected to trials. So when we are going through trials, we need wisdom, do we not? Lord, what do we do? Lord, what do I do? Where do we go from here? What is it that you want me to learn from this? Whatever the case may be, we are directed to God. Now, what do we often do in trials and struggles? We go everywhere but God. Sometimes we run away from God, but we're told, don't do that. Go to God and ask God for wisdom in our trials, and He will not withhold it. He gives it generously. So we don't need to think, well, I would go to God, but He probably won't answer me anyways. I'll ask God, but I don't even, you know, that's, he says don't do that. We have to ask in faith. If we're going to come to God in our trials and seek wisdom, then you need to believe that God's going to give it to you. Because if you don't, he says, you're just a double-minded person. You're unstable in all your ways. You know, what I lack in being half-hearted, I make up for in being double-minded. <laughs> and so we can't be double-minded, if, we, if you are going through trials and you need grace and you need wisdom, you need direction, you can go to God. You don't have to figure it out on your own. You're not left to your own devices. It's, that's why the Bible says that we are to acknowledge God in all our ways and He will guide our steps. Lean not on your own understanding, right? Trust the Lord. Go to Him for wisdom. The Bible says get wisdom. Proverbs says that wisdom is it's the beginning. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Now, we might have a lot of knowledge, but there's a distinction between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is information, and it's good to have information. Wisdom is how do you apply it? Because you can have somebody with a head full of knowledge, but they have no wisdom. They have no way to apply the things that they've learned. And so wisdom comes from above. Now, the world has a certain kind of wisdom, worldly wisdom. Some of it is totally foolish and corrupt. Some of it is practical and good, and people can advance in life through wisdom. But the heavenly wisdom, you can only get it from God. It's the wisdom that matters the most, and it is the wisdom that we need the most, and it's the wisdom that we need in trials. Because if you're going through something and you ask maybe coworkers or friends, people who don't know the Lord, what should I do, you're gonna be, you might be surprised at some of the stuff that you hear. And you might think to yourself, that is a terrible idea, or that, no way. We've got to go to God, God's wisdom, the wisdom that is from above, amen? We have a promise that that wisdom is available to us. So, when we go through trials, when, because we will, it's certain, various kinds of trials, we can have a joyful heart knowing that there is a purpose behind them, God tests us. It's for the testing of our faith. Now, this doesn't mean tempt. Tempt is something different. Satan wants to tempt us. He wants us to fall. He wants us to fail. God tests us to reveal what's in there. So God shows us where we're really at, 
and God strengthens us, gives us more steadfastness and endurance so that we will grow. And then we're told that we must involve God in the matter and go to Him for wisdom and that He'll give it to you. So have you asked God for wisdom lately? And when you ask God, do you really believe that you'll get it? Do you really stop and listen? Do you really go to His Word? Do you really seek wise counsel? Because we're told that we must and that we can. Why wouldn't we? Praise God. Amen. Praise God that trials are not wasted. God uses them for our good and for His glory. And that God is there for us and He gives us wisdom in time of need. Let's pray. Father, we love You. We praise You, Father. We give You glory. Thank you for this day. Thank you for your church. Thank you for the many blessings that you pour out on our lives. We love you, Lord. You're holy. You're worthy. You're altogether good. Please help us. Help us, Lord, to be able to endure trials and to see them for what they are, to draw near to you in them, and that they wouldn't be wasted, but that they would have their effect on us, their intended effect, and that we would grow thereby and that they would draw us closer to you, and that we would go to you for wisdom and guidance in these matters, and that we would see you work, that we would see the fruit that would come from our lives as a result, and that we would rejoice in you, and that you would make us more useful for your kingdom and to help others as well. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. your home to seek out the lost you knew the great and terrible cost Jesus your face was set I worked my fingers down to the bone but nothing I did could ever atone but Jesus you paid my debt and by your blood I have redemption and salvation Lord, you died that I might reap what you have sown, and you rose that I might be a new creation. I am born again by grace and grace alone. I was in darkness all of my life. I never knew the day from the night, but Spirit, you made me see. I swore I knew the way on my own Head full of rocks, a heart made of stone The spirit you moved in me And at your touch my sleeping spirit was awakened All my darkened heart the light of Christ has shown Called into a kingdom that cannot be shaken Heaven sent us sin by grace and grace alone. And so I'll stand in faith by grace and grace alone. I will run the race by grace and grace alone. I will slay my sin by grace and grace alone. I will reach the end by grace and grace alone. God bless you. God keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. May he lift up your countenance and give you peace. May he give you the endurance that you need, the strength to withstand 
the ability to carry on. May you grow by his good grace, and may you go to God for all the wisdom that you need this week. In Jesus' name, amen.